Hello and welcome to Random Interesting Facts, the podcast about everything and nothing, with your host, 42. This week's topic is cowboys. So, let's dive right in with fact number one. Being a cowboy was pretty boring. Yes, despite everything you might have seen in the movies, it was really rather dull. The job essentially consisted of herding cows, and not a lot else. Do you know how boring cows are? You may have an idea, but you probably don't fully appreciate the full power of their ability to be utterly fecking boring. A cow's daily schedule goes like this. Sleep for eight hours, eat for eight hours, chew cud for eight hours. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is quite literally it. They don't move fast unless they're stampeding, which is almost never. From the end of the Civil War in 1865 until around 1886, much of the West was pretty wild, with open prairie lands and no fences. So great herds of thousands of cows were driven from one area to another, sometimes over thousands of miles, to reach new grazing land, or to be sold and loaded onto wagons at a railhead, for transport via train to the East Coast. And herding cows during this era was the primary job of a cowboy. I mean, the clue's right there in the name. Cowboy. A name that originates from a boy who manages cattle. It's easy to romanticize the image of the frontier man standing alone in the land of the free, with nothing but his wits and his horse between him and death, and a chance to prove himself. And there was some truth to that. They had to be resilient, and anyone who wasn't tough enough wouldn't survive out there. But the image of the lone cowboy is a myth. Cowboys worked as a team, escorting great cattle herds across long trails. It took between 8 and 12 men to drive 3,000 head of cattle. If you look up the characteristics of a cowboy, You'll find a list of attributes such as courage, alertness, endurance, horsemanship, and skill with a lariat or lasso. And those all would have been vital, sure, but that doesn't mean the work was exciting. Anything but. A typical account of cowboy life in the 1860s lists five people. The rancher, his 14-year-old son, and three cowhands, looking after 7,000 head of cattle on a 1,000-acre ranch. The diarist who wrote this account, John Robinson, was seven years old at the time and was already working full-time. His job was to find cows that had got stuck in quicksand in the river and haul them out using his horse. When he was 13, he and his elder brother drove 3,500 cows to Hamilton County, which was around 200 miles south of their ranch, to establish a cow camp there for grazing. The journey would have taken a fortnight or more. They hired six cowhands to help, 
for $25 a month. Given that a cowboy's boots cost him around $30, that wasn't much pay for the gruelling 24-7 work in arduous conditions that involved a fair amount of risk. The hired hands even had to carry their own food and bedding, though the ranch probably supplied their horses. Cowboys would have been away from home for months at a time, with very little to keep them entertained. They slept outside in all weathers under a single woolen blanket. It was tough work. The weather was either blisteringly hot or freezing cold. Conditions were dusty and sweaty, and cowboys generally arrived at their destination sleep-deprived, filthy, and saddle-sore. On average, a herd could cover around 15 miles a day, with rest stops and grazing time along the way. At that speed, it took more than two months to travel the longer routes, such as the Chris Home Trail, which was a thousand miles long. The cows would have been capable of going faster and covering up to 25 miles in a day, but at that pace they'd have lost so much bulk along the way, upon arrival their value would have plummeted to the point of worthlessness. Apart from the occasional stampede and the extremes of heat and cold, hazards were generally mundane such as blisters and chafing or just time-consuming, such as having to spend hours searching for water. It wasn't all bad though. The message that comes through from the accounts of John Robinson is that it was a hearty outdoor life, with a great sense of freedom and the joy of being in the wild. But the hard labour, long hours and rigid expectations hardly marry up with the dramatic, gunslinging lifestyle of a TV cowboy. After 1886, with the invention of barbed wire, much of the land became enclosed, making long cattle drives impossible. And the railroads were extended into Texas, taking away the need for them in the first place. The cowboy remained, of course, but the job became mostly ranch-based work. So the days of roaming the frontier were gone, making the job more boring than ever. Next up, Moment from History. Where each week we look back at one particularly odd moment from the past. In this episode, we go back to the 27th of May, 1941, when a ship's cat that became known as Unsinkable Sam survived the first of three ship sinkings during World War II. The 27th of May 1941 fell right in the middle of the Battle of the Atlantic, the longest running continuous campaign of the Second World War. Starting right after war was declared in 1939 and continuing till it ended in 1945. At its heart it was a blockade and a counter blockade, with both sides trying to stop vital supplies from reaching enemy lines and civilians. The result was shortages of everything from food to fuel and munitions. Britain, who had ironically started the blockade, was especially hard hit. Being a small island nation, 
dependent on millions of tons of imports every week. Ultimately, the Allies won the Battle of the Atlantic, helped hugely by Alan Turing and other codebreakers at Bletchley Park, who famously cracked the Enigma code. This enabled them to thwart U-boat attacks on Allied convoys before they even happened. But the cost to both sides was huge. 3,500 merchant ships and 175 Allied warships were sunk, along with 783 U-boats and 47 German warships. In total, 100,000 sailors lost their lives. But Unsinkable Sam's story begins eight days earlier, on the 19th of May, 1941, when Bismarck, the largest battleship the Germans had ever built, set out on its maiden voyage, headed for the Atlantic, where its mission was to seek and destroy Allied convoys. Bismarck and her sister ship, Tirpitz, yeah, Bismarck was a better name, were 821 feet long and displaced up to 50,000 tons, making them one and a half times bigger than most German battleships at the time. And Bismarck was fast capable of a top speed of 30 knots, putting it amongst the speediest warships of World War II. On getting wind that Germany's new megaship was heading towards the Atlantic, the Royal Navy dispatched a fleet to seek and destroy it before it could wreak any havoc. Amongst that fleet was Britain's largest battlecruiser, HMS Hood famously the most powerful warship in the world at the time, and even faster than Bismarck. The 21-year-old Hood was considered unsinkable and was swamped in legend. But on the 24th of May 1941, when Hood and HMS Prince of Wales encountered Bismarck, it was Hood, not Bismarck, that was sunk by torpedoes from the German Goliath. One of them breached a hull immediately next to the munitions store, and then there was a massive explosion. Hood broke in two, and within three minutes, it had disappeared beneath the waves, with the loss of all but three of the 1,418 strong crew. This ignominious end to a national treasure sent shockwaves through Britain and seriously dented morale and Churchill ordered the Navy to get Bismarck. Bismarck had sustained a fair bit of damage by this point, particularly to its forward fuel tank, and was speeding towards occupied France for repairs. When, two days later, it was hit by torpedo bombers from aircraft carrier HMS Ark Royal, which destroyed its right rudder. This made it a sitting duck, condemned to just sail in a continuous circle. And sure enough, it was bombarded by naval destroyers the next day. Under heavy fire, on the 27th of May, the German crew scuttled and abandoned ship to limit further casualties. Yet only a smattering of German sailors survived. 110 were picked up by British ships, three by a U-boat and two by a German trawler. Within a week of its setting sail, 
and with a crew of 2,200 men, Germany's flagship battleship was at the bottom of the ocean, with only 114 men remaining alive. But there was another curious survivor, the only one picked up by the destroyer HMS Cossack some hours later. It was a black and white cat, found floating on a plank of wood. They initially nicknamed him Oscar, from the signal flag for the letter O, which is raised when there's a man overboard. But why was there a cat aboard the Bismarck? Well, he was probably the ship's official cat. From the time cats were first domesticated and humans first built ships, there have been ship's cats. Because for at least as long as there have been ships, there's also been ship rats which are destructive and disease-ridden. Now, I don't know if you've heard, but cats kind of have a reputation for killing rats. Yeah, it's a thing. So their place aboard ships, even military ones, is self-explanatory. They also make delightful companions, which, let's face it, sailors are usually in dire need of. There have been a number of notable ship's cats, one of which, Blackie, was even on the ship that damaged the Bismarck. HMS Prince of Wales, and he too survived a sinking in 1941. And in 1949, HMS Amethyst's cat, Simon, was awarded a medal for bravery after suffering an injury but continuing to catch rats as soon as he had sufficiently recovered. Sadly, Simon died shortly after returning to Britain and his medal was awarded posthumously. He even had an obituary in the Times. But no cat other than Oscar had survived more than one ship sinking. Now Oscar may have been a damn lucky cat, but when the Cossack picked him up, that luck didn't rub off on the ship itself, as only five months later, it too sank in the Atlantic on the 27th of October 1941, with a loss of 159 lives. It was struck by a single torpedo fired from a German U-boat, whilst escorting a convoy from Gibraltar to Britain. Oscar was rescued by HMS Legion and taken to Gibraltar, where he joined HMS Ark Royal which, if you remember, carried the planes that destroyed Bismarck's rudder. With his amazing and unprecedented two escapes from certain death, they renamed Oscar to Unsinkable Sam. But his good fortune aboard this ship was even more short-lived. Ark Royal, ironically, had gained a reputation as a lucky ship, having been in the Battle of the Atlantic from the very start and survived several near misses in the three years since. But less than a month after Unsinkable Sam came aboard, it was hit by a torpedo and sunk. But Unsinkable Sam, sure enough, was found again, floating on a plank of wood in the open ocean. I'm actually starting to think Oscar was the least lucky cat in history, not the luckiest. I mean, he certainly knew how to leave a shitstorm in his fluffy wake, Eventually, Unsinkable Sam was deemed too unsafe to be aboard any more ships. Yeah, no shit. And he lived out his retirement at a mariner's home in Belfast, 
until he died in 1955. Now, we'll take a short break and very soon we'll be back with fact number two. Fact number two. The cook was the most important cowboy. The one cowboy the team couldn't do without was the man in charge of dinner. It may seem obvious when I put it like that, but you'd be hard pressed to find a cowboy cook featured in more than just a handful out of thousands of westerns. The first trail drives didn't have cooks, and so cowboys had to fend for themselves. But good cowboys were in high demand, and ranchers soon found out they had a better chance of hiring and keeping them if they provided food. The first wagons on the trail were pretty rudimentary, but a Texan rancher called Charles Goodnight saw an opportunity to provide something a little more luxurious. Goodnight was already a trailblazer, a term that meant exactly that back in those days. Goodnight and his fellow rancher, Oliver Loving, pioneered a 700 mile route from Texas to New Mexico. It was called the Goodnight Loving Trail which, if you ask me, sounds a little bit more Brokeback Mountain than the good, the bad and the ugly. In 1866, Goodnight bought an army surplus wagon and hired a cook to help him kit it out. And they created the very first chuck wagon. Chuck meaning food. With compartments for food and utensils, a water barrel, a coffee mill and a Dutch oven everything needed to feed a small army of hungry cowboys. It also had room for medicines, tools, bedrolls, and horse feed. Goodnight's chuck wagon and its resident cook were an immediate success, and it quickly became the standard for trail cooking. The chuck wagon had plenty of room for food, such as salted meats, coffee, dried beans, long-lasting vegetables, lard, and flour. Beef was a staple, with fried steak being the most popular, but stews and pot roasts were also very common. The cook would also forage for food on the trail, and if the cowboys were lucky, he might have even cooked a pudding or pie for dessert. The cook also had to double as a doctor, dentist, barber, banker, repairman and grave digger. One of his jobs was to note the position of the North Star every night and turn the tongue of the chuck wagon towards it so that the team knew which way to head out in the morning. He also acted as something of a surrogate father to the younger cowboys, who might have been as young as 14. This lofty position was reflected in his salary, around $60 a month, more than twice a regular cowboy's wage, Trail bosses would tolerate worse behaviour from the cook than the regular cowboys. And sometimes they even deferred command to the cook. Fact number three. 
cowboys had fantastic etiquette. The Wild West has a reputation as a lawless, godless place, where nothing was certain except for dust and hardship. And it's true that it was largely beyond the reach of conventional law and order, but in reality, it was far from anarchy. Cowboys developed their own set of rules, and it's not hard to understand why. On the trail, life would have been impossible without some kind of framework for good behavior. And, in fact, they had amazing etiquette, especially when it came to dinner. Dinner on the trail was the highlight of the day, and no one likes arguments when they're tired and hungry. So, having strict ground rules around the chuck wagon made life simpler for everyone. Some of the rules were to protect the food. No saddling a horse near the wagon, and always ride off downwind. Which makes sense when you're living in a dust bowl. Other rules were probably developed to prevent fights. For instance, don't take the last serving unless you're sure you're the last man. Yeah, nothing will make a cowboy rage more than turning up late to camp and finding there's no food left. And some were clearly written by a pissed off cook. No one eats till Cookie calls. And when Cookie calls, everyone comes a running. And food left on the plate is an insult to the cook. And others were likely developed out of sheer common sense. If you come across any decent firewood, bring it back to the wagon. It's okay to eat with your fingers. The food is clean. If you're refilling the coffee cup and someone yells, Man at the pot! You're obliged to serve refills. After a meal, cowboys had to scrape their own plates clean and put them in a wrecking pan. A big dish pan set aside for the cook and his assistants to wash later. Although the most comprehensive list of polite behavior centered around food, cowboy etiquette extended far beyond the cook's domain into something that became known as the Code of the West, which was like the pirate's code, with less parrots. Although technically free to come and go as they pleased, cowboys worked in tight-knit groups, usually called outfits, and the cowboy's code demanded absolute loyalty to their outfit. A cowboy was also required to risk his life for his outfit, whilst, for example, guarding cows during a blizzard, or to control a stamping herd in the middle of the night, or from castle rustlers. They took this collective responsibility very seriously. Famously, when a cowboy from the Bar N outfit rode out of Miles City without paying his bills to a certain prostitute, he was promptly fired from the outfit and all the other Bar N cowhands chipped in to pay the prostitute's bill for the sake of the outfit's reputation. There was also a strict hierarchy. Cowboys considered themselves equal, but they were all socially inferior to the former and superior to other workers such as trappers and buffalo hunters. Some parts of the cowboy code were weirdly specific such as never try on another man's hat and 
always fill your whiskey glass to the brim. There were also rules around how to treat strangers, mainly just be hospitable and welcome them to dinner. A cowboy must never shoot a woman, and he was always supposed to give his enemy a fighting chance, though you have to wonder how often they actually did that when no one was looking. The list goes on and on. But on a more serious level, the men of the Wild West meted out their own brand of justice. This justice could be harsh at times, but it was developed out of necessity. Rustling, stealing cows, was a major problem. And ranchers initially tried to report rustlers to the local authorities, but culprits were usually just acquitted due to a lack of evidence, so they resorted to holding their own trials. John Robinson, the diarist mentioned earlier, said his father sometimes presided as judge during cowboy trials that were held in remote wooded areas near the river. The case would be heard, the defendant would then have a chance to respond, before all the ranchers would vote on whether to acquit him, stay the judgment but banish the man, or sentence him to death, which yeah was probably the option chosen. The execution was usually carried out by hanging the defendant from a tree on the very spot where the trial was held. To be honest it was probably as fair as any court in the land at the time. And according to Robinson, once two of the most notorious rustlers had been dispatched of, their rustling problem magically went away. Thank you so much for listening, I really hope you've enjoyed this episode of Riff. If you have, then please rate, review and subscribe, so you never miss an episode. And if you have your very own random interesting fact that you're just dying to share with me, then please tweet it at me using the hashtag Riff Podcast. That's hashtag RIF Podcast. Thank you.